Okay, and we're live. So today we continue on with the second part of the Chulahati Padopama Sutta, Jimnikaya number 27. And as usual, we will be reading, chanting the Pali first, and then reading and discussing the English. So let's just get started in a minute here. I think this is where we started from, no? The Buddha starts talking. So I guess we can just start. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Sayata Pibramarna Gavaniko Nagavanam Pavisaya Sopasaya Nagavane Mahantang Hatipadang Digatocha Ayatang Tiriyancha Vitatang Yohoti Kusalo Nagavaniko Gachati Mahavatabo nago titangisahetu Santi Brahmarna nagavane namitnika namahatiniyo Mahapada tasampetang padang asati So tamanugachati tamanugachanto Pasati nagavane mahantang hatipadang Digatoja ayatang tiriyancha vittatang Uchacha niwe nisevitang Yoho tikusalo nagavaniko Nevatava nittang gachati Mahavatabo nagoti Tankisahe to santihi brahmana Nagavane ucha kalarika namahatiniyo mahapada Tasampitang padang asati Sotamanugachati tamanugachanto Pasati nagavane mahantang hatipadang Digato jayatang diriyanchavitatang Uchachani sevitang uchachadante hiaranjitani Yohoti kusalo nagavaniko nevatavanitangachati Mahavatabo nagotitangisahetu Santihi brahmana nagavane uchakane rukvana mahatiniyo mahapada Asampetang padang asati 
Sotamanugachati damanugachanto Pasatinagavane mahantang hatipadang Ligato jayatang giricha vitatang Uchachani sevitang uchachatante hiaranjitani Uchachasakabangang Tanchanagam pasati rukamulagatangwa Aboka sagatangwa kachantangwa tirtantangwa Nisinangwa nipanangwa So nitangachati ayame waso mahanagoti Upajati araham samma sambuddho vinca charana sampano Sugato loka vidu anuttaro purisadhamma sarati Satta deva manusanam buddho bhagava So imam lokam sadevakam samarakam Sabramakam sasamarna brahmanim sajang sadeva manusang Sayang abhinya sachikatva pavedeti Sodamang deseti adhikalyanam Majekalyanam pariyosanakalyanam Satang sabhyanjanam kevala paripurnam Parisuddham brahmachariyam pakasiti Tangdhammam sunati gahapati vagahapati puttova Anyatarasmin vakule pachajato So tangdhammam sutva tathagate saddhang patilabati So tena sadda patilabina tamanakato Iti pati sanjikati Sambhado garawaso rajopato Abhokaso pabhacha Nahidang sukarang agarang Ajava sata ekanta paripunam Ekanta parisudang sangkalikaitang Brahmashariyang charitang Yang nunahang kesamasung o haritwa Kasayani watani achaditwa Agarasmanagari ang pambajayanti So aparena samayena apang wabogakhandang Pahayamahantang wabogakhandang pahaya Apang wanyati pariwartang pahaya mahantang wanyati pariwartang pahaya Kesamasung o halitwa kasayani watani Atchaditwa garasma anagari ang pambajati So ewan pambajito samano bikunang Sika sa jiva samapano parnati patang bahaya Parnati patal pati vidato tinihila dando nihila sato 
ಅಧೀನಾಧೀನಾಧೀನಾಧೀನಾಧೀನಾಧೀನಾಧೀನಾಧೀನಾಧೀನಾಧೀನಾಧೀನಾಧೀನಾಧೀನಾಧೀನ
ketavatyu patikahana pativirato hoti rute yapahirna gamananu yoga parivirato hoti kayavikaya pativirato hoti tula kurta kangsa kurta mana kurta pativirato hoti O Kortana Vanshana Nikati Sachi Yoga Pativiratoti Chedana Vada Dabandana Nabari Sa Alo Pasahasakara Pativiratoti So Santurtoti Kaya Parihari Kena Chivarena kuchi parihari kena pinda patena. So yena yene vapakamati samada ye vapakamati. Sayata pinama paki sakuno yena yene va. Deti sapata baro vareti. Eva meva bliku santo toho tigaya parihari kena. Chivarena kuchi parihari kena pinda patena. So yena yene vapakamati samada ye vapakamati. So imina ariena sila kandena samanagato. Ajatamana vajasukam patisang vidhiti. So jakuna rupangiswana nimitta gahi Oti nanu bhyanjana gahi Yatvadikarna menang chakundriyanga sangudang Viharantang abhinjadomanasa papaka akusaladamma Alvasavayyung tasa samvaraya patipanjati Rakati chakundriyam chakundriye sangvarang papajati Sotena sadam sutvape Kanena gandangayitva jivaya vrasam sahitva Kayena portambam pusitva mahasadam mangvinyaya Nanimitta gayoti nanubhyanjana gahi Yatvadikarna menam manindriyanga sanghutang Viharantang abhinjadomanasa papaka akusaladamma Anvasavayyung tasa sangvaraya patipajati Rakati manindriyam manindriye sangvarang apajati So iminariyena indriya sangvarena samanagato Anjatang abhyasekasukang patisang vedeti So abhikante patikante sampajanakari hoti Alokite vilokite sampajanakari hoti Saminjite pasarite sampajanakari hoti Sangati Patajivaradharane Sampajanakari Hoti Asite Pite Kaite Saite Sampajanakari Hoti 
Okay, that's it for Sila. So we'll stop there. So now we're going to get the Buddha's uh, take on the whole idea that you can know the elephant by the you can know the elephant by the size of its footprint like this the type of footprint so what's he going to say about this let's see Brahman suppose an elephant woodsman were to enter an elephant wood and were to see in that elephant wood a big elephant's footprint long in extent and broad across a wise elephant woodsman would not yet come to the conclusion, indeed, this is a big bull elephant. Why is that? In an elephant wood, there are small she-elephants that leave a big footprint, and this might be one of their footprints. He follows it and sees in the elephant wood a big elephant's footprint, long in its extent and broad across, and some scrapings high up. A wise elephant woodsman would not yet come to the conclusion, indeed, this is a big bull elephant. Why is that? In an elephant wood, there are tall she-elephants that have prominent teeth and leave a big footprint, and this might be one of their footprints. He follows it further and sees in the elephant wood a big elephant's footprint, long in extent and broad across, and some scrapings high up, and marks made by tusks. A wise elephant woodsman would not yet come to the conclusion, indeed, this is a big bull elephant. Why is that? In an elephant wood, there are tall she-elephants that have tusks and leave a big footprint, and this might be one of their footprints. He follows it further and sees in the elephant's wood a big elephant's footprint, long in extent and broad across, and some scrapings high up, and marks made by tusks and broken off branches. And he sees that bull elephant at the root of a tree or in the open, walking about, sitting, or lying down. He comes to the conclusion, this is that big bull elephant. Right, so not not incredibly dharmic, but uh, he's he's pointing out that uh, you can't know an elephant by its footprint. It's not enough, and in fact, you really can't. There, there's a difference between uh, extrapolating the evidence to come to a conclusion and actually experiencing your conclusion, actually experiencing um, the truth for yourself, which is an important concept in Buddhism. All of the Buddha's teachings have to be under have to be realized for themselves. There's this satchikaroti, this idea of satchikarana, which means seeing for yourself or realizing for yourself. Or in other phrases, yata buddhanyanadasana, which means knowing and seeing things as they are, which is the essence of the Buddhist concept of wisdom. Buddhist concept of wisdom at its heart has nothing to do with or, or leaves behind any kind of uh, extrapolation of evidence. Even to the point of, because you could you could actually argue 
that if you see the bull elephant uh, at the root of the tree or in the open walking about, etc., etc., you might still be hallucinating, right? Or it might be a mechanical elephant, or you might be in um, some kind of virtual reality system, or it might be a human being in the form uh, a magician or a wizard in the form of an elephant, or some angel in the form of an elephant. So you know, lots of possibilities. It might just be in your head. It might be a delusion of yours. You might be schizophrenic, or who knows. But in Buddhism, there's a claim or or a a, the idea, the concept that we can get beyond that because when you see the bull elephant there's no question that an experience of seeing has arisen. So in terms of Buddhism um, we consider based on how we, how, we exp how we describe reality in, as, as being experiential uh, we're able to see reality for ourselves and we don't have to rely upon um, extrapolation or um, what's the word? coming to conclusions, jumping to conclusions. When you look at the world around you, you have to take it for granted that what you're seeing is actually there. But you don't have to take for granted the seeing because the seeing is what you experience. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking, all of these things, there's no ext extrapolation needed. And, and, and this is what we hope to, uh, to understand through our practice and the characteristics of, of the six senses and the characteristics of experience as being impermanent, suffering, and non-self. There's no need to extrapolate that. When you talk about reality, it's, it's simply what you observe, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking, and the wisdom of seeing things as impermanent suffering and non-self is also something that you realize for yourself. It's not something you think about. You think, hey, yeah, yesterday was different from today, or boy, that's changed, or I can see how, how that's impermanent because it's not going to be here forever and it's going to disappear. This isn't wisdom. Wisdom in Buddhism is the direct realization for yourself. Oh, it's changing, it's changing, it's changing, it's, it's impermanent. It's unsatisfying, seeing how it causes you, it's causing you suffering, seeing how it's uncontrollable, experiencing how uncontrollable everything is, having it go, having things go against your wishes until you give them up, realizing that they're not under your control. So that's, um, the, the Buddha therefore won't allow, and he's going to talk about below, in, into the, in the same way he's not going to allow you to, to come to the conclusion that this is the, the Buddha is fully enlightened until you see the Dhamma for yourself. So that's what we're going to get into now. <coughs> so, so too, Brahman, here Tathagata appears in the world, accomplished, fully enlightened, perfect in true knowledge and conduct, sublime, knower of worlds, incomparable leader of persons to be tamed, teacher of gods and humans, enlightened, blessed. He declares this world with its gods, its Maras, and its Brahmas, its Brahmas, this generation with its recluses and Brahmins, its princes and its people, which he has himself realized with direct knowledge. He teaches the Dhamma good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end, with the right meaning and phrasing, and he reveals a holy life that is utterly perfect and pure. Right, so this is a stock phrase that you're going to see again. We, I think we've already seen it, we've seen it already. 
Tathagata is the, the Buddha appears in the world, and his Arahang Samma Sambuddho Vija Charan Sampano Sugato Loka Vidu Anuttaro Pavisadamma Sarati Satta Deva Manusanang Buddho Bhagava. So Imang Lokang he, he declares this world. So he describes the world. He just he, he or he teaches the world in, in the sense of he um, he makes clear the nature of this world, or he, he makes clear reality to the people of this world. He or he describes the whole world. He's able to understand the whole world, the whole universe, the whole of existence. Well, it's Maras, which are the evil angels, and it's uh, the gods would be angels actually, say good angels, evil angels, uh, uh, gods, and then the people, whether they be recluses, Brahmins, uh, royalty, or ordinary people. And so having realized the truth for himself, he declares it to the world. Teaches the Dhamma that it's good in the beginning means it's pure in its, in its beginning in terms of morality. The morality of the Buddha is pure, it's good in the middle. So the practice, the concentration that cult is cultivated is pure, is beautiful, and it's good in the end, and in the, the goal, the result, is good and useful and uh, cultivate, um, consummating an enlightenment. It's the wisdom of the Buddha is good. The right meaning and phrasing means it's taught, the wording of it is, is good, it's uh, easy to understand, and the, the meaning of it, meaning behind it is uh, correct. So both both the wording and the meaning is correct. And all in all, in general, the life that the Buddha describes pres prescribes for his students is utterly perfect and pure. In the sense of, there's no part of it that leads one to become defiled. There's no part of it that leads one astray. There's no part of the Buddha's teaching that is twisted or perverted or um, conducive for uh, of the cultivation of defilement or evil or any any impurity whatsoever a householder or householder's son or one born in some other clan hears the Dhamma here's that Dhamma on hearing the Dhamma he acquires faith in the Tathagata possessing that faith he considers thus Household life is crowded and dusty. Life gone forth is wide open. It is not easy, while living in a home, to lead the holy life utterly perfect and pure as a polished shell. Suppose I shave off my hair and beard, put on the yellow robe, and go forth from the home life and the homelessness. On a, so, sorry, on a later occasion, abandoning a small or large fortune, abandoning a small or large circle of relatives, he shaves his hair off and... He shaves off his hair and beard, puts on the yellow robe, and goes forth from the home life and the homelessness. So you notice that he hasn't even, he's not even going to consider this idea of uh, someone who acquires faith in the Dhamma. So all these people that that were enough reason for, uh, what's his name up, up at the top, to believe that the Buddha was enlightened, he doesn't even, he's not even going to consider that. For him that's that's meaningless and he said that he says in other places he said elsewhere that uh, whether people praise the Buddha or don't praise the Buddha it's not a sign that the Buddha is enlightened it's not it's it's of no consequence so people praise the Buddha you should 
determine whether it's true or not. If people speak in dispraise of the Buddha, you should look at whether it's look at the fact that it's not true, uh, as opposed to that whether it's uh, of any consequence. Praise and blame are not a reason to think someone enlightened. But suppose someone goes forth and starts to realize the Dhamma for themselves. This is what he's going to get into here. They start practicing the Dhamma for themselves. At what point can they actually say that the Buddha is, is the Buddha? There would be a gain perfect faith in what they're doing. I mean, when you start something out, there's very little faith. So there's this faith that you get from hearing the Dhamma, but still this confidence as to whether or not what you're doing is actually the nusuv of enlightenment. You've got to go on well, in faith, right? It's a blind faith, or it's um, this appeal to authority. You look at someone as being an authority, and you see that their practice, their their mannerisms, their conduct appears pure, and so you decide to follow after them. And there's this famous phrase that's one of my favorites: "Household life is crowded and dusty. Life gone forth is the, is like the open air." It is not easy while living in a home to lead the holy life utterly perfect and pure as a polished shell. This is something that we hear quite often, people complaining they, they have the good intentions to practice, but they're so caught up in work and family and society that they never have time to study or practice Buddha's teaching. At least not utterly perfect and pure. So they decide to go forth. There's nothing. There. Having thus gone forth and possessing the bhikkhu's training and way of life, abandoning the killing of living beings, he abstains from killing living beings. With rod and weapon laid aside, conscientious, merciful, he abides compassionate to all living beings. Abandoning the taking of what is not given, he abstains from taking what is not given, taking only what is given, expecting only what is given. By not stealing, he abides in purity. Abandoning incelibacy, he observes celibacy, living apart, abstaining from the vulgar practice of sexual intercourse. Okay, these are the three physical karmas, bad, unwholesome uh, bodily karma. This is a, an, another stock passage, the same or very much the same, very similar to what we find in the in the Diganikaya, the Brahmajala Sutta, the Samanyapala Sutta, and so on. Uh, so, so common, he's, he's talking about morality. Remember we talked about the Buddha's teaching is pure in the beginning, the middle, and the end. Well, here someone starts to practice and cultivates the morality, and this gives great faith even, even to start with, realizing how pure the prescribed rules of the Buddha are, how, how, how perfect and useful they are. There's nothing wacky in there like having to uh, eat certain foods or this or that or having to do certain rich perform certain rituals it's it's all very much based on common sense morality not killing not stealing and uh, abandoning s sexual activity abandoning false speech he abstains from false speech he speaks truth adheres to truth is trustworthy and reliable one who is no deceiver of the world. Abandoning malicious speech, he abstains from malicious speech. He does not repeat elsewhere what he has heard here in order to divide those people from these, nor does he repeat to these people what he has heard elsewhere 
in order to divide these people from those. Thus he is one who reunites those who are divided, a promoter of friendships, who enjoys concord, rejoices in concord, delights in concord, a speaker of worlds that promote concord, words that promote concord. Abandoning harsh speech, he abstains from harsh speech. He speaks such words as are gentle, pleasing to the ear, and lovable, as as go to the heart, as go to the heart, are courteous, desired by many, and agreeable to many. Abandoning gossip, he abstains from gossip. He speaks at the right time, speaks what is fact, speaks on what is good, speaks on the Dhamma and the discipline, and at the right time he speaks such words as are worth recording, reasonable, moderate, and beneficial. The great thing about these, even though they're, they're stock, they're, they're, there's nothing ordinary about them. You know, this is These are the explanations of why these precepts are important and, and how to practice these, these precepts, right? So it's not just about not killing people, living beings. The point is that killing is, is the opposite of purity. It's the opposite of enlightenment. An enlightened being would never kill They've laid the rod and weapon inside. They're conscientious, merciful, and compassionate, and from kill, from stealing, because they understand that it, these things are not given. And celibacy, they abstain from vulgar practices, exception. And then we get into speech. Why is it? Why is? What sort of conduct is expected that we be trustworthy? How can you be trustworthy if you're lying? If you're engaging in false speech? You become a deceiver of the world, a malicious speech. How how you practice it. So this is the concise but uh, very direct explanation of these things by the Buddha. <coughs> by not dividing, you delight in concord, rejoice in concord. Why is this important? Because it leads one to <coughs> delight harmony. Leads one towards harmony, away from uh, division, divisiveness. Then abandoning harsh speech, one becomes gentle and pleasing to the ear, lovable. Going to the heart means heartwarming, or how do you say, things that really touch a person. They're courteous and desired and agreeable. Abandoning gossip. There's a person, and gossip here, the word gossip isn't just gossip, because normally we think gossip is more like the one above it, the or the one, the first one, the second one. Uh, malicious, but um, I would say that's malicious gossip where you try to divide people. Someone says something bad about someone else and you go and tell that person, hey, did you hear what so-and-so said about you? Like that, to try to break them up. But gossip here just means um, useless or unbeneficial talk. So one avoids speaking just for the sake of being heard or just for the sake of speaking, just for the, sake, just for the pleasure of hearing one's own voice kind of thing. When one speaks, one speech is valuable. A person who's it's like any commodity. The more there is of it, the less valuable it is. A person who talks a lot, their their speech loses its value. <clears throat> he abstains from injuring seeds and plants. He practices eating only one meal a day, abstaining from eating at night and outside the proper time. He abstains from dancing, singing, music, and theatrical shows. He abstains from wearing garlands, smarting himself with scent, and embellishing himself with un unguents or unguents. unguents. 
He abstains from high and large couches. He abstains from accepting gold and silver. He abstains from accepting raw grain. He abstains from accepting raw meat. He abstains from accepting women and girls. He abstains from accepting men and women slaves. He abstains from accepting goats and sheep. He abstains from accepting fowl and pigs. He abstains from accepting elephants, cattle, horses, and mares. He abstains from accepting fields and, and land. He abstains from going on errands and running messages. He ab abstains from buying and selling. He abstains from false weights, false metals, and false measures. He abstains from accepting bribes, deceiving, defrauding, and trickery. He abstains from wounding, murdering, binding, brigandage, blunder, and violence. This is uh, Majima Sila, I think it's called. The first one is just is is our basic understanding of morality. This one is is as you can see much more refined. So it's things that we wouldn't normally think too 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 uh, strongly about or too often about. Anyway, I mean some of them are seem quite a, quite trifling. But the idea is that he ref, he or she refines their their life to the point where they are. Um, dedicated and focused to the path on the path not engaging in anything that might cause disharmony or or conflict so there's a lot of things that they abstain from Mo i mean mostly it's not a social statement like like it's not anti-slavery not actively anti-slavery it's not abstaining out of out of protest it's more abstaining because these things are a cause for great um Stress and and um, complexity for the person. If you have men and women slaves, regardless of the morality, the obvious immorality of it, uh, having men and women slaves is a great uh, temptation. It makes it obviously great luxury to have servants, um, having farm animals, and so on. All of these things. Uh, not only are they immoral, but there's there's more of an undercurrent of, of these things being a burden and being a distraction from the path. But I think a lot of them are actually obviously to be, to be considered immoral. Even injuring seeds and plants is kind of um, you know, not immoral for ordinary people, but there's a sense that um, someone who is dedicated to a peaceful life in the sense of being a recluse or someone who has left society has no business cutting down trees and, and weeding and so on. I don't know the part about raw grain. And raw grain, that's obviously seems to be not uh, a moral, moral precept, but it's uh, it's moral in the sense of it was immoral to store food for cooking because it distracts you, then you have to cook, and then you have to store and so on. Raw meat, of course, has to be stored. Does that count right, rice in the husk? There are lots of stories amongst eating rice. Raw rice. It can't be raw. Raw is not allowed because it's uh, considered uncooked and has to be cooked. You can't eat raw rice. No. See, abstains from accepting elephants. Good thing. They yeah. tend to cause trouble. Fields and land, etc., etc. Abstains from growing on errands and running messages. This is a big one. Lay people often get um, caught up in or get accustomed to expecting something in return from the monks and then they start to go from recklessness and then the recklessness end up having to work for the lay people eventually the lay, lay people will only support them if they 
do this or do that worldly thing. So that should be abstained from buying and selling, etc., etc., all these things. <coughs> As a result, he becomes content with robes to protect his body and with alms food to maintain his stomach. And wherever he goes, he sets out taking only these with him. Just as a bird, wherever it goes, flies with its wings as its only burden, so too the bhikkhu becomes content with robes to protect his body and with alms food to maintain his stomach. And wherever he goes, he sets out taking only these with him. Possessing this aggregate of noble virtue, he experiences within himself a bliss that is blameless. This is another excellent paragraph, one that we, as monks anyway, we, this is a way of, really good way of understanding the monk life. It's like a bird. And what does all that stuff up above mean? And the, and the list goes, goes on and on and on. In the Brahma Jala Sutta, there's far more than that as to what a monk shouldn't, should and shouldn't do. The point being, they become like a bird, flying free, not carrying anything around. Content with only robes to protect the body and alms food to maintain the stomach. Taking only those with him. It's just like a bird, right? And this is considered noble virtue. And as a result, one experiences bliss that is blameless. Not having to carry around pots and pans and furniture and so on. Desktop computers. Yeah. On seeing a form with the eye, he does not grasp at its signs and features. Since, if he left the eye faculty unguarded, evil and wholesome states of covetous, covetousness and grief might invade him. He practices the way of its restraint. He guards the eye faculty. He undertakes the restraint of the eye faculty. On hearing a sound with the ear, on smelling an odor with the nose, on tasting a flavor with the tongue, on touching a tangible with the body, on cognizing a mind object with the mind, he does not grasp at its signs and features. Since, if he left the mind faculty unguarded, evil and wholesome states of covetousness and grief might invade him, he practices the way of, of its restraint, he guards the mind faculty, he undertakes the restraint of the mind faculty. Possessing this noble restraint of the faculties, he experiences within himself a bliss that is unsullied. Now here, what the Buddha is not saying here is what we start to say in terms of the in regards to the meditation. And I always refer back to this um, this phrase here. People talk about how the the meditation that we practice prevents you from really understanding, really experiencing the object. You're not able to tell the details of the object. Like you don't know what is its is its uh, the the detailed nature of it. So the movements of the foot, if you just say to yourself, stepping right, stepping left, how can you know the detailed uh, nature of each as each aspect of the movement? Like, does this one feel heavy? Does this part feel light? Does this feel hot or cold or heavy or, or, or so on? Uh, and here the Buddha is saying that's not important. That's actually the whole point to not go into details. M much more, for example, for the senses. So when you say to yourself, seeing, seeing, you can't really experience the seeing in any depth. You only know it as seeing, and that's the point. The point is to just recognize it as seeing. The reason why we say to ourselves, seeing, seeing, is to keep the mind simply at the level of knowing it as seeing, not allowing the mind to go into detail about it. We don't want to go into subtle experiences of the, the detailed features of it. 
So the Mahasi meditation doesn't count as a, with all this you know, lifting, raising, moving, lowering, touching, pressing. Those aren't features of stepping, stepping. No, no, the point is that each one of those, you know it only as that. You don't go into detail with any of them. Lifting heel, you know it is lifting heel. Lifting, you know it is lifting. There's no sense of the characteristics. Well, heel. Lifting heel, you sense heel. No, whatever. Well, I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> well, the point is you're not going into detail about about its nature. You're, you're not. The point is, uh, well, actually he's talking here about the senses, but with anything, if you leave it unguarded, the evil unwholesomeness states of covetousness and grief. Now that won't come if you're just knowing it just as it is. This is only lifting heel. It's not. There's no way for it to be pleasant or unpleasant. There's no way for it to be something that could cause grief or covetousness. Really, I'm only trying to reassure myself, just to get a better understanding. Well, you're not getting more detail just because you're getting a shorter amount of time, right? If you cut something up, it's just getting shorter. It's not getting. It's not changing. Whether you say stepping right or you say lifting heel, lifting moving, you're just cutting something up into smaller chunks. The question is, what is the quality of that? Is it bare awareness or is it some sort of um, qualitative assessment? And is it good, it's bad, and so on, which is what we try to avoid. We don't, try, we don't have to avoid the detail, the, 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 the depth of intricacy. That's only a chronological, it's only a time thing. It's not a depth, but a detail. We don't go into detail at all. This is this, this is this, this is this, and so on. It is easier to understand with the, the senses. In terms of the senses, the eye should just be seeing. There should be no idea of, is that a box I see? Is that a light I see? Is it bright? Is it beautiful? Is it ugly? Of course, etc., etc. Mm. Okay. So if you understand it with the senses, it's um, well, it's easier to see that there's more. But, but with with walking as well, there will be a feeling of pleasure or so on that, that can also be, if left unguarded, it can be pleasant. It can be smooth. It feels smoother. It feels rough you know, when you lift your foot. It feels kind of jarring and so on. It gives rise to liking or disliking. This is why when you when you're really mindful of it, your mind is is at peace. Your mind is clear. This leads to a bliss that is unsullied because the mind is free from covetousness and grief. There's no stress of liking and disliking. He becomes one who acts in full awareness when going forward and returning, who acts in full awareness when looking ahead and looking away, who acts in full awareness when flexing and extending his limbs, who acts in full awareness when wearing his robes and carrying his outer robe and bowl, who acts in full awareness when eating, drinking, consuming food, and tasting. Who acts in full awareness when defecating and urinating. Who acts in full awareness when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent. Now we get into the actual meditation, but this is considered to be a form of morality, but it's it's the morality on a meditation meditative level. So anyone who talks about... Um, Morality as being somewhat apart from the meditation or apart from medi from mindfulness should understand what the Buddha really meant by these pa last two paragraphs: guarding the senses and keeping uh, um, full awareness. Sampajan sampajanakadi. 
these are actually meditative practices to keep the mind from wandering away when looking ahead, when going forward and returning, that means when on the walking path or or, or when going out for alms and coming back from alms, um, when looking ahead and looking away, when flexing and extending limbs, when e in every movement there should be a full awareness just like the one above, not grasping at the not grasping at the signs and features, so just knowing it as this is looking, uh, flexing the limb is flexing the limb, extending, flexing the limb is extending is extending limb. Doing everything we do, even urinating and defecating. You know, Buddha's teaching has to be practiced even on the toilet. This is where true morality comes during the time that you're defecating and urinating. When you're walking, standing, sitting, and lying down, waking up, taking, talking, and keeping silent. That's all we get for today. So, one of the better, uh, one of the more inspiring suttas, like all these little tidbits make it um, one of the more important suttas. Of course, they're all important. This one happens to sort of stand out in several ways. So, that's part two. Tomorrow we finish up the Chula Hatipadopama Sutta. Thank you all for tuning in, and have a good night.